Before I read our scriptures for this morning, I want to let you know that these are not easy verses. Our Hebrew scripture reading from Genesis made the list of Phyllis Tribble's four texts of terror as she tells the story of Hagar. And in the Gospel of Matthew, we will hear really challenging words from Jesus, including, a slave is not above a master. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother. If we were to just open our Bible and accept these passages without working through them, they could mislead us quite terribly. But friends, being a Christian, especially in our tradition, means that we are willing to bring our minds to the scriptures, that we are willing to read them aloud in community and try to make sense of these really hard passages together. We believe that God is still speaking, and we believe that as a community, we can gather together with open hearts and open minds, set our assumptions aside about what these passages might mean, and be open to them confronting us again today, that we might be changed, and that in changing, we might become better disciples of Jesus, of this Jesus we find in these scriptures, and not a Jesus of our own imagining. Friends, I do have faith that we can come to this text and that we can do it well and do it together and that we will find life-giving good news even in these very, very hard passages. So let us listen together from the word of God beginning in Genesis in the 21st chapter. And this is continuing on with the passage from Genesis which we read together last week when Sarah and Abraham found out the good news that they would have a child whom they named Isaac, Laughter. The child grew and was weaned and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, playing with her son Isaac. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not inherit along with my son Isaac. And friends, we have to pause here because although Sarah does not acknowledge her own complicity in this story, this was all her idea. She was the one who took this young girl, who was her handmaiden, and this is the story that Margaret Atwood based the handmaiden's tale on, she gave her to her husband that she might conceive a child that Sarah could then claim as her own, so that she could take that child, so that she wouldn't feel as devalued in this patriarchal society they lived in, where a woman's value was based solely on whether or not she had children. So Sarah has erased her complicity in this story, but we know what she has done. So she says to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not inherit along with my son Isaac. The matter was very distressing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, do not be distressed because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for it is through Isaac that offspring shall be named for you. 
As for the son of the slave woman, I will make a nation of him also because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took a bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on, the sh- on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. As we said last week, these people are not in our scriptures because they are heroes and heroines. They are not here to be emulated. They are here because God was with them throughout everything they faced. But here, Abraham and Sarah commit this atrocity against Hagar and her son, and God seems very complicit as well. This is a very, very hard text. And she departed and wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she cast the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot. For she said, Do not let me look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God came to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Do not be afraid. For God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Come, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make a great nation of him. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. She went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother got a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Now, Hagar had tried in the scriptures once before to flee from her abusive owners, and she didn't make it, and God had sent her back. But now this time, she has claimed her freedom. She has run away, and God was with her. It was Hagar who first encountered God then and named God, He Sees Me. And the very name Ishmael, the name of her son, means God hears me. So God sees Hagar and her son. God hears them. And God has a story for them, despite everything they have been through. God had said, do not be afraid, Hagar. So now turning to another really difficult text that we will set alongside this one from the gospel according to Matthew. A disciple is not above the teacher nor a slave above the master. It is enough for the disciple to be like the teacher and the slave to be like the master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them. Does this hearken back to the text we've just heard, not to be afraid? Have no fear of them, for nothing is covered up that will not be uncovered, and nothing secret that will not become known. What I say to you in the dark, tell in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim from the housetops. Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? 
Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, and even the hairs of your head are all counted, so do not be afraid. You are of more value than many sparrows. I think that Hagar also knew this comforting message. God knows her and loves her so much. God knows each and every hair on her head. God, who cares about the, the fall even of a sparrow, she is of so much more worth to God than a sparrow. Jesus goes on, Everyone, therefore, who acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, I will also deny before my Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and one's foes will be members of one's own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Those who find their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake will find it. Friends, let us pray. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. God, you are our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. So the theologian Karl Barth has suggested to preachers that they preach with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. And today I want to preach with world news set alongside the Hebrew scriptures and hyper-local news from the Fairfield Patch set alongside the gospel and see if we can't wrestle some good news from these texts. So first to begin, friends, I wonder if you were riveted as so many people were by the story of people in the submarine that had gone down to see the Titanic. When I turned on the radio when I first got in my car early that morning, I heard first a woman's voice, the newscaster, say, you will be hearing about this story all day long. And she was right. That news story completely consumed the news cycle until we found out that all of the people on that submarine had indeed perished. The news cycle was transfixed by this story, a story of billionaires who had paid $250,000 a ticket to go down to see the wreckage of the Titanic. And if you were riveted as well, I do not judge you for that. And I do not really judge the media for the way they put out the news because they are reflecting back to people a mirror. They're holding up a mirror of what they know will transfix and capture our attention. But some voices started to challenge this and say there was also a ship that was going down at just about the same time with hundreds of people fleeing, fleeing war, fleeing famine, and they were sinking and they had been calling for help and hardly any attention from the news 
was given to those hundreds of people. It was all consumed by these five. And not only were those people, the refugees on that ship that was going down, not only had they been crying out in distress then while they were on a ship in distress on the seas, they had been crying out for help for years. What drove them to get on that ship is a refugee crisis, a global refugee crisis where millions of people are displaced because of natural disaster and human disaster, because of war and famine and lack of opportunity. And these cries so often go ignored by the rest of us. So it was not just to point out and shame the media or not to point out or shame any one of us who's captivated by a story like the submarine, but to point out the disparity, the horrifying disparity in the way we value some lives over and against others. And it occurs to me that each and every one of those people on that ship were like Hagar. Hagar, who with her child had had to flee, who was facing starvation in the desert just as they were facing their peril on the seas. And have you heard it said before that it is the victors who record a story? It is the conquerors, it is the colonizers, it is those who win in any conflict who get to tell the story in history. But as we turn back to scripture, we find that Hagar's story is not lost. Abraham and Sarah are the ones who might have wanted to record their story and only their story to send her and her son away and forget all about her. But the good news, some of the good news in this scripture is that we are not allowed to do that. We cannot forget Hagar and what she went through. I heard this week from a woman who had been raised in a pseudo-Christian sect, the IBLP, which is more familiar to many of us from the Duggars. And it's a tradition that is raising especially young women and girls in horrifyingly abusive situations where they are taught that they are completely devalued. Their value is only as a wife and a mother. They're groomed from a very young age and abuses are kept in silence. And her family raised her in this tradition and she got out of it. And she continues to have a very, very deep faith, a deep love of God, a deep love of the scriptures, a deep trust in who God is and how much God loves her. And she said, people say to her, how is it that you were raised in this tradition, but you still cling to God? And I heard echoes of how Hagar encountered God in the wilderness. She said that her parents had taught her how to read the scripture even how to translate it from the original Greek, and her parents had taught her a listening prayer. So despite all of the abuse and oppression that came to her from her church, she was able to hear God's voice still saying to her that she mattered. And I hear that too with Hagar, that Hagar, who had been told she was of no account, cast out into the wilderness to watch her child die, hears God come to her and say, what troubles you, Hagar? This God whom she has named, God sees me. She knows she matters to God. She knows better. Even though the world didn't tell her that, she knew directly from God, God sees me. And then her, her child has the experience, God hears me. The child is crying out for thirst and God hears that child and gives him water. 
It is not that God doesn't care about the five people who perished, but it's that God loves even the ones that are told they are of no account. God sees and God hears all of the refugees who were perishing on the water. And what it means to be a disciple of Jesus is to get rid of the lies that we create when we imagine that there is a hierarchy that has any significance to God, that anyone's life is worth more than anyone else's, and to be willing to call it out, to see this discrepancy, to see that it's not just about attention, it's about rescue efforts. There was an international rescue effort with millions and millions of dollars spent to rescue five people, and hardly a penny spent for hundreds of others. This is not the way God wants us to treat one another. And so turning to the gospel message, I wonder if when we first hear this, a slave is not above a master, if this is not Jesus telling slaves like Hagar to stay in their place, because I do not believe Jesus would ever say that. But if Jesus isn't in the very next line saying, they are like one another, the slave is like the master, and Jesus isn't equalizing everybody to correct for our own assumptions. So don't set, no matter who you are, don't set yourself above anyone else, but hold everybody in equal esteem and regard. Give equal attention to everyone who needs it. And so to turn to the hyper-local news, I'm going to speak somewhat from my, my own experience, even my own neighborhood, but I, I hope that you can also read something into this from your own lived experience. So what's happening in our local news, have any of you heard about the racial imbalance in Fairfield that the state has mandated that we need to address? And this has been ongoing, if you've lived in Fairfield for a long time, for decades. Fairfield has been saying that McKinley has a racial imbalance, but actually the situation is McKinley has a great racial balance and the rest of the town has a racial imbalance. It has been, um, there have been many solutions suggested. And the town, I hate to say it, but I feel like I hear pushback from different circles of parents all over town to every single one of these solutions. And to be fair, none of them is easy and none of them is perfect. If we were to solve for the problem of a racial imbalance in Fairfield, we would have to rewind the clock 404 years. Or we would have to at least go back a generation and fix the problem of a lack of affordable housing spread equally throughout Fairfield. But all of those efforts have also been met with pretty severe resistance. And this is hyper-local for me because now I have, I have two children who are still going to be in the elementary school system when this redistricting happens. But if you were to imagine one of the solutions is to close an elementary school altogether, which of course we love our neighborhood schools, we love walkers, we love that it's a great environmental choice to be able to walk to schools, so that's a, a hard one to face. Another one is if you were to imagine the town as sort of a clock and a reshuffling so that people all shift, you know, a portion of people shift into each, you know, their next closest school all around the clock, which uproots many, many children from elementary schools that they are accustomed to and that they love, their own neighborhood school, and then this third option, which I have a hunch is going to be the one that happens. And it has 
It's called the satellite solution. And my little neighborhood on one side of Jackman Park is one of the satellite zones, which would be swapped with McKinley. And a little satellite zone from McKinley would be swapped with Stratfield. And all of this has, every single solution has pushback. But one of the things that really upset me this week was when someone in my own neighborhood got, was getting ready to protest this potential move and made two points. One, that this is a burden now that is not spread equally. If we take the model of a clock where there's a shift across town, more people are sharing in the solution. But I don't know why that's a good thing to have more people impacted. But So that was one argument. But then the other was that this place is an undue burden on our little kids and our own little community, and the rallying cry started to pop up, who's going to make signs? And this really hurt my heart, because I will make, I think this will happen, and I hope my neighborhood will make signs. I will make signs celebrating that despite the, year, the years and years of history that has brought us to this point, some children have the opportunity to write a problem in town, and this should be celebrated. Not, we can't push back against it, we can't fight it, we have to celebrate that there's an opportunity to fix a racial balance. And I believe that this matters to God, that this matters to Jesus, that how we are supposed to live our lives is in a community where there is not disparity across racial lines in a local school system. And it harkens back to a situation that happened I grew up in a suburb of Boston, but a few years before I was born, there was the scandal of the Boston busing incidents. Have you heard of this, where kids were bused across town to try to solve for a racial imbalance? And white moms misappropriated strategies from the civil rights movement. They marched, they protested, they had sit-ins, but they also took to violence, and they threw rocks at the buses, bringing black children into their neighborhoods to go to school with their kids. What had happened before this solution was that there was overcrowding and underfunding of the black schools in Boston, while the white schools in Boston had all of the resources, the best brand new textbooks, great class sizes, and across town kids didn't have desks and they were sitting in hallways because their schools were so overcrowded. And instead of celebrating an a fair and equitable solution, people rose up to protest. And I cannot imagine the impact it had on those kids who were learning from their own parents the right and wrong way to behave and the right and wrong way. I'm speaking very, very locally from my very own family now, but I will want my kids to see me celebrate them going to the most diverse school in the community. And I will hope that the kids who go to Stratfield School, where they go now, will be welcomed with open arms. This is not just about diversity, it's about equity and inclusion, and my hope is that this is followed through all throughout Fairfield, and that we adopt strategies where every single child knows that they are welcomed and they belong, no matter what elementary school they go to. That would be good news. That would be the town of Fairfield living out what we say matters. And that would be this church community, if we could step up and support this happening, that would be us living out, working for racial justice. To return to our scriptures, I feel confronted when I hear these words that 
people will be separated from one another. To expect your own family members to take on something hard, of course, is not to hate them, but it is to love the gospel more than you love the ease for yourself or anyone in your family. And I, I know most of you don't have elementary school children, but I bet you can imagine, I think that the, you know, the stereotype story is the racist uncle at the Thanksgiving dinner table. I'm sure there are situations where you need to step up to people in your own family. And I think this is where Jesus says he didn't come to bring peace but a sword. Sometimes justice looks like bringing a sword and separating out right from wrong, coming down hard and making a dividing line. This thing is wrong and I won't stand for it. I won't listen to family members protest it. I won't listen to friends and neighbors protest it. We're going to come down on the side of right. Peace will follow the making of justice. But if you were to say that you loved anyone more than you love living into God's love for all people, you would be standing in the way of what Jesus in God is trying to bring to the world. Each and every person each and every cry is heard by God. May we channel our compassion, may we channel our energy, may we channel our attention and mirror God's love for all people in the ways that we live, in the ways that we live out all of our daily lives. We are going to sing God's eye is on the sparrow and I know he watches me. I imagine Hagar as a grandmother watching all of her grandchildren play around her, testifying to how God sees her, how God hears her, how God tells her she is of infinitely more value than many sparrows. And I hope that all of the school children in Fairfield know just how loved they are. <laughs>